Welcome to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Welcome to this lifetime management episode of the podcast. And today we're very happy to have here as a faculty, Dr. Joe Bavaria from Philadelphia, Dr. Bob Kiai from the UC Davis Health Center, and Maral Uzunian from uh, Toronto. Welcome here. A very important topic that we are going to discuss today because a lot of things have changed, uh, not only in, um, uh, in cardiac surgery, but also in cardiology. And that's actually is how do we treat our patients going forward? And of course, one of the biggest topics and discussion points has been the introduction of transcatheter aortic valves. As we all know, that has been a disruptive technology. And also in some way, it has been disruptive for the cardiac surgeon as well. And maybe I can start the discussion by asking, you know, to Dr. Bavaria, what has surprised you over the last 10, 15 years by the introduction of transcatheter aortic valves? What has surprised you most? Well, um, I was involved at the very beginning of the transcatheter revolution. And I think that the surprise to me is actually how revolutionary it's been. Uh, I, um, I mean, we all knew it was going to be revolutionary, but it was not quite uh, uh, it didn't quite have the impact that I that uh, as it as it hasn't turned out. Uh, and um, so that's the biggest thing. It's an incredible technology uh, and a very, very good technology. If you look at the STS database, uh, we were running at in the United States at about 80 you know, uh, 80,000 uh, total AVRs of all types uh, per year, surgical AVRs. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, 10 transcatheter valves come in. And now we're, uh, you know, 10 years later, we're running at about 77,000 uh, total uh, surgical AVR. So it's about the same almost or a little bit less. Uh, but um, we have 125,000 TAVRs. Uh, so the total number of patients treated with aortic stenosis has gone from 70, uh, 80,000 or so uh, to 200,000, 220,000. So, so did, it's, you uh, know that there, did you know that there were so many patients with aortic stenosis that actually were not treated? No, I mean, I think there was some hints of that uh, uh, at the level of the cardiologist, but even more importantly, at the level of the internist uh, and family doctors. Uh, so it, I think that surprised us uh, as well. I, I tell you, the last thing that was really surprising was uh, the, uh, the beautiful approach that both Edwards and Medtronic uh, did uh, regarding prospective randomized trials uh, uh, was also an incredible achievement. Right. So, Maral, what, what has not surprised you? What was not a surprise to you with the introduction of transcatheter aortic valves? Well, I think um, the clear thing that was not really surprising was patient preference for less invasive approaches to their aortic valve disease. And so the um, the the concept right now that we reassess every patient together as a heart team and present choices, pros and cons, and so on. When you come down to patient uh, preference, similar to PCI and coronary disease, patient patients do prefer less invasive approaches to their heart disease. So that was not surprising to me. Um, I, I agree with Joe that, uh, you know, the, the companies have done a really excellent job of actually providing prospective randomized data in the field and the pace of data accumulation was tremendous. And the rapid growth that we have seen, um, in a sense, has uh, really sort of outpaced the evidence. If you look at the guidelines today, it really, it's, it's they've sort of jumped ahead of where the evidence uh, lands us. But at least we are starting with randomized trials that we can then follow patients for longer uh, duration, five and 10 years and so on. 
Yeah. So, so Bob, are we there yet? Uh, do we have enough evidence? As, as Joe and, and Maral pointed out, there has been a lot of you know, very good studies being done in this area now. But do we have enough evidence who to treat with transcatheter aortic valves and who to treat with surgery? I think that there is adequate evidence for patients who are inoperable patients or high-risk patients who are intermediate risk. The low-risk patients, bicuspid aortic valves, patients who have low coronary heights, these are the patients that I think are still not fully identified whether they are most, we can say, as good to have it done surgical approach further because all the studies, as you know, has been non-inferior studies, all right? None of them have been shown. Yes, maybe some studies have shown some mild improvement if they do TAVRs. So uh, I think that there is adequate evidence in a certain group of population of patients. And I think that that is the main thing is we have to make sure that the indications and this type of treatment strategy, which has definitely, I totally agree with Dr. Bavaria, this has been revolutionizing in terms of the delivery of care to patients, specifically elderly. Uh, and I think that we should make sure that we focus and deliver it in the right direction and not try to deviate, go to areas that yet not fully known how beneficial it would be. So, you know, I got to, yeah, I got to, I got to say something here as, so as a chairman or past chairman for three years of the TBT registry in the United States, which is a mandated governmental registry uh, with about uh, 300,000 plus, um, you know, patients in it. So it's huge data set. There are, there are two areas that are a little bit concerning about transcatheter valve over the past decade. Uh, In other words, this is a platform issue, uh, which is the number, the amount of pacemakers the number of pacemakers or percentage of pacemakers in the real world, not the trials, but in the real world, has not changed one bit uh, for ten for uh, you know eight to ten years. That's one thing, which is a little bit interesting. It's almost like it's a platform issue. Uh, and the third, the second thing is that the stroke rate's exactly the same, or pretty much the same. Okay, if you, especially if you if you uh, if you risk adjusted according to age. So uh, we do have um, some, despite the fact we have prospective randomized trials. The big registry data sets, which is another way of looking at things as well, uh, show that there are some some holes in the in the transcatheter uh, revolution, so to speak. Right. So, so the pacemaker rate is, is is probably higher. You know, we've seen it in trials. You see it in the registry, as you just pointed out, Joe. The stroke rate is, of course, always controversial. Is how how do you measure stroke? Um, and often, you know, the trials are used in neurologists um, and probably in surgery. It has been a little bit underestimated. Is that fair to say? Well, I think it's certainly fair to say that's underestimated in the registry data. That's for sure. Um, and, um, you know, listen, uh, if you use a neurologist on every case, you're going to have a high stroke rate. Yeah, exactly. And then that's that. therefore, you know, people who are criticizing a little bit the, the, the data from surgical series say, well, you know, it's much more rigorous, the assessment in, in the trials and in the public TVT registry as well. Or do you do you agree or disagree with that? Me or morale? Yeah, you, you Joe, you, you, you started oh. with this and then we'll ask morale. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that if you have a, a protocol and a prospective randomized trial, uh, you know, that is gonna have a higher stroke rate uh, or at least a, a, maybe a more real stroke rate uh, than a registry data set, whether it's the STS database or the TVT, you know, ACC, STS, TVT database. Um, because basically you're you're following VARC2, you know, you're following more established protocols. 
uh, and uh, and frankly, you have a neurologist involved. So that's been well well established for a long time. Right, Mar- Morel, is stroke is that a major issue in surgery for aortic valve stenosis? It really depends on how hard you look. The uh, if you look prospectively with MRI on patients who have surgical AVR, you find hits in the brain a substantial proportion of the time. Whether or not they translate into meaningful clinical deficits is a question that still remains to be answered. Um, but certainly, ascertainment of stroke is better done in a prospective way with neurology and so on. But I'm not sure you can say is it is it better ascertained in TBT versus STS? I doubt it. You know, they're both registry. Uh, data. They both have uh, data collectors uh, doing this um, um, in a prospective way, but in a less rigorous way than in a trial setting. And that's just how how it's going to be. But I think the issue of uh, pacemaker, you know, the the one the some of the areas we really don't know the long term impact. We know if you're a 60 year old and you need a pacemaker, I think that has a detrimental effect on your long term, both your quality of life as well as potentially your your life expectancy. So pacemaker, I think, is a significant issue when we move to younger and low risk patients. Same with uh, paravalvular leak. You know, if it's mild and you're elderly, then it's really uh, insignificant. Significant, but if you're younger, this will potentially have a detrimental impact uh, on you in the long term. Um, I think we also don't know what to do with coronary patients with concomitant coronary disease. You know, how will that go in the future? Accessing their coronaries and and um, and dealing with it in the future. Right. So, the, so the pacemaker issue, Bob. So, in the cath lab, you know, when a patient gets a transcatheter aortic valve, you know, you look at how the EKG is changing during the procedure, how the patient came in, how he's leaving the cath lab, and so there's a pretty rigorous, you know, assessment of the EKG, and and therefore that could also lead to a higher pacemaker rate. Um, so, what do you think about surgery? Do we always uh, you will give patients that have a left bundle branch block the same attention, or should we in surgery pay more attention to uh, changes in the EKG? That's a very good question. Uh, I think that uh, in the past, we haven't put as much emphasis into the preoperative EKGs once if the patient's undergoing a surgical valve replacement. But I guess now, based on what has occurred in the TAVI, in the TAVI, TAVI type of literature, we're more probably uh, uh, put more emphasis on it. But again, I don't think it's as much of a, a significant significance in a surgical uh, valve replacement because generally, as long as you are very attentive to where you're putting your sutures, uh, it's more predictable compared to unless it's a redo operation or somebody who's got some endocarditis. But even a standard elective aortic valve replacement, I don't think the EKGs are as, you can say, uh, 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 emphasized for surgical AVR compared to TAVIs. Because in TAVIs, if they've got a bundle branch block, or a hemi block, then definitely they're at risk of developing that. So you have to be very extremely cautious about that and leave the pacemaker in after the operation. But in surgical cases, that's not as important. So, Bob, what do you do if you have a patient after surgical AVR um, and has conduction disturbance after surgery? How long do you take to decide whether the patient needs a pacemaker? How long do you wait? I mean, generally, and that's one of the things I was going to try to say is, is in, in the surgical, uh, you can say patients, surgical AVR patients, patients are in the hospital longer, they're followed. So things like stroke and things like that can be picked up in them much easier compared to when the patient leaves the hospital the next day after a tabby. 
So in terms of pacemaker, generally uh, uh, we follow the patient. They are usually on telemetry for about at least four or five days after the operation. And if there's any evidence of uh, heart block or there's any evidence of uh, bradycardia or anything like that, they have a temporary pacemaker and always in place. And if that required to be utilized, then we basically consider putting the pacemaker in. So I would say probably about four days. After four days, if you're concerned still about their rhythm disturbance, about their electrical type of conduction, then we'll go ahead and put it Right. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.